0: Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads, The Woman in White, the great psychological thriller from Wilkie Collins, first released in 1860 and the seventh book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads, featuring the acclaimed Canadian actress, artist, television and radio host, Marilyn Lightstone. Now, without further ado, here's Marilyn to read us Wilkie Collins, The Woman in White.
1: Chapter five She has escaped from my asylum Ah oh, I cannot say with truth that the terrible inference which those words suggested flashed upon me like a new revelation. Some of the strange questions put to me by the woman in white, after my ill-considered promise to leave her free to act as she pleased, had suggested the conclusion either that she was naturally flighty and unsettled, or that some recent shock of terror had disturbed the balance of her faculties. But the idea of absolute insanity, which we all associate with the very name of an asylum, had, (laughs) I can honestly declare never occurred to me in connection with her. I had seen nothing, in her language or her actions, to justify it at the time, and even with the new light thrown on her by the words which the stranger had addressed to the policeman, I could see nothing to justify it now. What had I done? Assisted the victim of the most horrible of all false imprisonments to escape? Or cast loose on the wide world of London, an unfortunate creature whose actions it was my duty and every man's duty, mercifully, to control. I turned sick at heart when the question occurred to me, and when I felt self-reproachfully that it was asked too late. In the disturbed state of my mind, it was useless to think of going to bed when I at last got back to my chambers in Clement's Inn. Before many hours elapsed, it would be necessary to start on my journey to Cumberland. I sat down and tried, first to sketch, then to read. But the woman in white got between me and my pencil, between me and my book. Had the forlorn creature come to any harm? That was my first thought, though I shrank selfishly from confronting it other thoughts followed, on which it was less harrowing to dwell. Where had she stopped the cab? What had become of her now? Had she been traced and captured by the men in the chaise? Or was she still capable of controlling her own actions? And were we, too, following our widely parted roads towards one point in the mysterious future, at which we were to meet once more?" It was a relief when the hour came to lock my door, to bid farewell to London pursuits, London pupils, and London friends, and to be in movement again towards new interests and a new life. Even the bustle and confusion at the railway terminus, so so wearisome and bewildering at other times, roused me and did me good. My travelling instructions directed me to go to Carlisle, and then to diverge by a branch railway which ran in the direction of the coast. As a misfortune to begin with, our engine broke down between Lancaster and Carlisle. The delay occasioned by this accident caused me to be too late for the branch train, by which I was to have gone on immediately. I had to wait some hours, and When a later train finally deposited me at the nearest station to Limbridge House, it was past ten, and the night was so dark that I could hardly see my way to the pony chase which Mr. Fairley had ordered to be in waiting for me. The driver was evidently discomposed by the lateness of my arrival. He was in that state of highly respectful sulkiness which is peculiar to English servants.' we drove away slowly through the darkness in perfect silence. The roads were bad, and the dense obscurity of the night increased the difficulty of getting over the ground quickly. It was, by my watch, nearly an hour and a half from the time of our leaving the station before I heard the sound of the sea in the distance and the crunch of our wheels on a smooth gravel drive we had passed one gate before entering the drive, and we passed another before we drew up at the house. I was received by a solemn manservant out of livery, was informed that the the family had retired for the night, and was then led into a large and lofty room, where my supper was awaiting me, in a forlorn manner, at one extremity of a lonesome mahogany wilderness of dining-table. "'I was too tired and out of spirits to eat or drink much, "'especially with the solemn servant waiting on me "'as elaborately as if a small dinner party had arrived at the house "'instead of a solitary man. "'In a quarter of an hour I was ready to be taken up to my bedchamber. "'The solemn servant conducted me into a prettily furnished room, "'said, "'Breakfast at nine o'clock, sir,' "'looked all round him to see that everything was in its proper place,' and noiselessly withdrew. "'What shall I see in my dreams to-night?' I thought to myself, as I put out the candle. "'The woman in white? Or the unknown inhabitants of this Cumberland mansion?' It was a strange sensation to be sleeping in the house, like a friend of the family, and yet not to know one of the inmates, even by sight.' Chapter 6. When I rose the next morning and drew up my blind, the sea opened before me joyously under the broad August sunlight, and the distant coast of Scotland fringed the horizon with its lines of melting blue. The view was such a surprise and such a change to me, after my weary London experience of brick-and-mortar landscape, that I seemed to burst into a new life and a new set of thoughts the moment I looked at it. A confused sensation of having suddenly lost my familiarity with the past, without acquiring any additional clearness of idea in reference to the present or the future, took possession of my mind.' Circumstances that were but a few days old faded back in my memory, as if they had happened months and months since. Pesca's quaint announcement of the means by which he had procured me my present employment, the farewell evening I had passed with my mother and sister, even my mysterious adventure on the way home from Hampstead, had all become like events which might have occurred at some former epoch of my existence. Although the woman in white was still in my mind, the image of her seemed to have grown dull and faint already. A little before nine o'clock, I descended to the ground floor of a house. The solemn manservant of the night before met me wandering among the passages and compassionately showed me the way to the breakfast room. My first glance round me, as the man opened the door, disclosed a well-furnished breakfast table standing in the middle of a long room with many windows in it. I looked from the table to the window farthest from me and saw a lady standing at it with her back turned towards me. The instant my eyes rested on her, I was struck by the rare beauty of her form and by the unaffected grace of her attitude. Her figure was tall, yet not too tall, comely and well-developed, yet not fat. Her head set on her shoulders with an easy, pliant firmness. Her waist, perfection in the eyes of a man, for it occupied its natural place. It filled out its natural circle. It was visibly and delightfully undeformed by stays.' She had not heard my entrance into the room, and I allowed myself the luxury of admiring her for a few moments before I moved one of the chairs near me as the least embarrassing means of attracting her attention. She turned towards me immediately. The easy elegance of every movement of her limbs and body, as soon as she began to advance from the far end of the room, set me in a flutter of expectation to see her face clearly. She left the window— and I said to myself, the lady is dark. She moved forward a few steps, and I said to myself, the lady is young. She approached nearer, and I said to myself, with a sense of surprise which words fail me to express, the lady is ugly. Never was the old conventional maxim that nature cannot err more flatly contradicted. "'Never was the fair promise of a lovely figure "'more strangely and startlingly belied "'by the face and head that crowned it. "'The lady's complexion was almost swarthy, "'and the dark down on her upper lip "'was almost a moustache. "'She had a large, firm, masculine mouth and jaw, "'prominent, piercing, resolute brown eyes, "'and thick, coal-black hair.' Growing unusually low down on her forehead. "'Her expression, bright, frank, and intelligent, "'appeared, while she was silent, "'to be altogether wanting in those feminine attractions "'of gentleness and pliability, "'without which the beauty of the handsomest woman alive "'is beauty incomplete. "'To see such a face as this, "'set on shoulders that a sculptor would have longed to model.' to be charmed by the modest graces of action through which the symmetrical limbs betrayed their beauty when they moved, and then to be almost repelled by the masculine form and masculine look of the features in which the perfectly shaped figure ended, was to feel a sensation oddly akin to the helpless discomfort familiar to us all in sleep, when we recognize, yet cannot reconcile, "'the anomalies and contradictions of a dream. "'Mr. Hartwright,' said the lady interrogatively, "'her dark face lighting up with a smile, "'and softening and growing womanly the moment she began to speak. "'We resigned all hope of you last night, and went to bed as usual. "'Accept my apologies for our apparent want of attention, "'and allow me to introduce myself as one of your pupils. "'Shall we shake hands?' "'I suppose we must come to it sooner or later, and why not sooner?' "'These odd words of welcome were spoken in a clear, ringing, pleasant voice. "'The offered hand, rather large but beautifully formed, "'was given to me with the easy, unaffected self-reliance of a highly bred woman.' We sat down together at the breakfast table in as cordial and customary a manner as if we had known each other for years, and had met at Limeridge House to talk over old times by previous appointment. "'I hope you come here good-humouredly determined to make the best of your position,' continued the lady. "'You will have to begin this morning by putting up with no other company at breakfast than mine.' "'My sister is in her own room, nursing that essentially feminine malady, a slight headache, "'and her old governess, Mrs. Veazey, is charitably attending on her with restorative tea. "'My uncle, Mr. Fairley, never joins us at any of our meals. "'He is an invalid and keeps bachelor state in his own apartments. "'There is nobody else in the house but me.'" Two young ladies have been staying here, but they went away yesterday. <laughs> in despair and no wonder. All through their visit, in consequence of Mr. Fairley's invalid condition, we produced no such convenience in the house as a flirtable, danceable, small talkable creature of the male sex. And the consequence was, we did, we did nothing but quarrel, especially at dinner time. "'How can you expect four women to dine together alone, every day, and not quarrel? "'We are such fools. We can't entertain each other at table. "'You see, I don't think much of my own sex, Mr. Hartwright. "'Which will you have, tea or coffee?' Uh, "'No woman does think much of her own sex, although few of them confess it as freely as I do. (laughs) "'Oh, dear me, you look puzzled. "'Why? Are you wondering what you will have for breakfast?' "'or are you surprised at my careless way of talking? "'In the first case, I advise you, as a friend, "'to have nothing to do with that cold ham at your elbow "'and to wait till the omelette comes in. "'In the second case, I will give you some tea "'to compose your spirits and do all a woman can, "'which is very little, by the by, to hold my tongue.' "'She handed me my cup of tea, laughing gaily.' her light flow of talk and her lively familiarity of manner with a total stranger were accompanied by an unaffected naturalness and an easy, inborn confidence in herself and her position which would have secured her the respect of the most audacious man breathing. While it was impossible to be formal and reserved in her company, it was more than impossible to take the faintest vestige of a liberty with her, even in thought." I felt this instinctively, even while I caught the infection of her own bright gaiety of spirits, even while I did my best to answer her in her own frank, lively way. "'Yes, yes,' she said, when I had suggested the only explanation I could offer to account for my perplexed looks. (laughs) "'I understand. You are such a perfect stranger in the house that you are puzzled by my familiar references to the worthy inhabitants.' Naturally enough, I ought to have thought of it before. at any rate, I can set it right now. Suppose I begin with myself so as to get done with that part of the subject as soon as possible. My name is Marion Halcombe, and I am as inaccurate as women usually are in calling Mr. Fairley an uncle and Miss Fairley my sister. My mother was twice married the first time to Mr. Holcombe, my father the second time to Mr. Fairley, my half-sister's father. Except that we are both orphans. We are in every respect as unlike each other as possible. My father was a poor man, and Miss Fairley's father was a rich man. I have got nothing, and she has a fortune. I am dark and ugly, and she is fair and pretty." Everybody thinks me crabbed and awed, with perfect justice, and everybody thinks her sweet-tempered and charming, with more justice still. In short, she is an angel, and I am... Well, try some of that marmalade, Mr. Hartwright, and finish the sentence in the name of female propriety for yourself. What am I to tell you about Mr. Fairley? Hmm. <laughs> Upon my honor... I hardly know. <laughs> he is sure to send for you after breakfast, and you can study him for yourself. In the meantime, I may inform you, first, that he is the late Mr. Fairley's younger brother. Secondly, that he is a single man. And thirdly, that he is Miss Fairley's guardian. I won't live without her, and she can't live without me. And that is how I come to be at Limeridge House. My sister and I are honestly fond of each other, which, you will say, is perfectly unaccountable under the circumstances, and I quite agree with you, but so it is. You must please both of us, Mr. Hartwright, or please neither of us, and what is still more trying, you will be thrown entirely upon our society.' Mrs. Vesey is an excellent person who possesses all the cardinal virtues and counts for nothing. And Mr. Fairley is too great an invalid to be a companion for anybody. I don't know what is the matter with him, and the doctors don't know what is the matter with him, and he doesn't know himself what is the matter with him. We all say it's on the nerves, and we none of us know what we mean when we say it. However, I advise you to humor his little peculiarities when you see him today. Admire his collection of coins, prints, and watercolor drawings, and you will win his heart. Upon my word, if you can be contented with a quiet country life, I don't see why you should not get on very well here. From breakfast to lunch, Mr. Fairley's drawings will occupy you, "'After lunch, Miss Fairley and I shoulder our sketchbooks "'and go out to misrepresent nature under your directions. "'Drawing is her favourite whim. Mind, not mine. "'Women can't draw. "'Their minds are too flighty, and their eyes are too inattentive. "'But no matter. "'My sister likes it, so I waste paint and spoil paper for her sake "'as composedly as any woman in England.'" As for the evenings, I think we can help you through them. Miss Fairley plays delightfully. For my own poor part, I don't know one note of music from the other, but I can match you at chess, backgammon, a and, with the inevitable female drawbacks, even at billiards as well. What do you think of the programme? Can you reconcile yourself to a quiet, regular life, or do you mean to be restless and secretly thirst for change and adventure in the humdrum atmosphere of Limeridge House? She had run on thus far in her gracefully bantering way, with no other interruptions on my part than the unimportant replies which politeness required of me. The turn of the expression, however, in her last question, or rather the one-chance word, adventure, lightly as it fell from her lips, recalled my thoughts to my meeting with the woman in white, and urged me to discover the connection which the stranger's own reference to Mrs. Fairley informed me must once have existed between the nameless fugitive from the asylum and the former mistress of Limeridge House. Even if I were the most restless of mankind, I said, I should be in no danger of thirsting after adventures for some time to come. The very night before I arrived at this house, I met with an adventure, and the wonder and excitement of it, I can assure you, Miss Helcombe, will last me for the whole term of my stay in Cumberland, if not for a much longer period. You don't say so, Mr. Hartwright. May I hear it? You have a claim to hear it. THE CHIEF PERSON IN THE ADVENTURE WAS A TOTAL STRANGER TO ME, AND MAY PERHAPS BE A TOTAL STRANGER TO YOU, BUT SHE CERTAINLY MENTIONED THE NAME OF THE LATE Missus FAIRLEY IN TERMS OF THE SINCEREST GRATITUDE AND REGARD. MENTION MY MOTHER'S NAME? (laughs) YOU INTEREST ME INDESCRIBABLY. PRAY, GO ON. I AT ONCE RELATED THE CIRCUMSTANCES UNDER WHICH I HAD MET THE WOMAN IN WHITE, EXACTLY AS THEY HAD OCCURRED and I repeated what she had said to me about Mrs. Fairley and Limbridge House, word for word. Miss Halcombe's bright, resolute eyes looked eagerly into mine, from the beginning of the narrative to the end. Her face expressed vivid interest and astonishment, but nothing more. She was evidently as far from knowing of any clue to the mystery as I was myself. "'Are you quite sure of those words referring to my mother?' "'She asked. "'Quite sure,' I replied. "'Whoever she may be, "'the woman was once at school in the village of Limeridge, "'was treated with especial kindness by Mrs. Fairley, "'and, in grateful remembrance of that kindness, "'feels an affectionate interest "'in all surviving members of the family. "'She knew that Mrs. Fairley and her husband were both dead, "'and she spoke of Miss Fairley "'as if they had known each other when they were children.' You said, I think, that she denied belonging to this place? Yes, she told me she came from Hampshire. And you entirely failed to find out her name? Entirely. Very strange. I think you were quite justified, Mr. Hartwright, giving the poor creature her liberty. For she seems to have done nothing in your presence to show herself unfit to enjoy it. "'but I wish you had been a little more resolute about finding out her name. "'We must really clear up this mystery in some way. "'You had better not speak of it yet to Mr. Fairley, or to my sister. "'They are, both of them, I am certain, quite as ignorant of who the woman is, "'and of what her past history and connection with us can be as I am myself.' but they are also in widely different ways rather nervous and sensitive, and you would only fidget one and alarm the other to no purpose. As for myself, I am all aflame with curiosity, and I devote my whole energies to the business of discovery from this moment. When my mother came here, after her second marriage, she certainly established the village school just as it exists at the present time but the old teachers are all dead, or gone elsewhere, and no enlightenment is to be hoped for from that quarter. The only other alternative I can think of—at this point, we were interrupted by the entrance of the servant, with a message from Mr. Fairley, intimating that he would be glad to see me as soon as I had done breakfast. "'Wait in the hall—' "'said Miss Halcombe, answering the servant for me in her quick, ready way. Uh, "'Mr. Hartwright will come out directly.' "'I was about to say,' she went on, addressing me again, "'that my sister and I have a large collection of my mother's letters "'addressed to my father and to hers. "'In the absence of any other means of getting information, "'I will pass the morning in looking over my mother's correspondence with Mr. Fairley.' He was fond of London and was constantly away from his country home, and she was accustomed at such times to write and report to him how things went on at Limeridge. Her letters are full of references to the school in which he took so strong an interest, and I think it more than likely that I may have discovered something when we meet again. The luncheon hour is two, Mr. Hartwright. I shall have the pleasure of introducing you to my sister by that time." and we will occupy the afternoon in driving round the neighbourhood and showing you all our pet points of view. Till two o'clock, then. Farewell.' She nodded to me, with a lively grace, the delightful refinement of familiarity which characterised all that she did, and all that she said, and disappeared by a door at the lower end of the room. As soon as she had left me, I turned my steps toward the hall and followed the servant on my way for the first time to the presence of Mr. Fairley.
0: Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads' The Woman in White. This episode was produced by Justin Ecock, Executive Producer Moses Neimer. This is the seventh book in our Marilyn Lightstone Reads podcast series. We invite you to go back and listen to Marilyn read A Room with a View, Pride and Prejudice, The Age of Innocence, Anne of Green Gables, Jane Eyre, and A Christmas Carol. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network.